Shall we pray? Our Father, we would ask humbly that you would open your word to us, help us to see these truths that we profess in this confession. Help us to believe them deeper and to be more convinced of them so that we might be able to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that we have. Our Father, we would ask the blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would invite you to open to two places in Scripture, Romans chapter 1 and also John chapter 14, which we'll look at in a, in a bit. And also, please turn to chapter 21 in the Westminster Confession. It's found as a bulletin insert. It's also the back of the Psalter hymnal, chapter 21. Were you aware that there's a whole chapter in the Westminster Confession on the worship of God, explaining who's to be worshipped, how God is to be worshipped, when he's to be worshipped? It's a very practical chapter with many applications in our day with so many questions and different approaches to worship in evangelical churches. There's a lot to cover. It's very dense. Tonight we're just going to be looking at who is to be worshipped. The confession is summarizing scripture here, four aspects. All people know that they are to worship God. Secondly, all people are to worship the triune God. Third, all people are to worship the triune God alone. And fourth, all people are to worship through the mediator of Christ alone. First then, all people know that they are to worship God the first section, first half. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, that he is good and does good to all, and that he ought therefore to be feared, loved, praised, prayed to, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the mind. Doesn't that remind you back to chapter 1? Section 1, beginning the confession, although the light of nature, all that we can know from our physical senses and the reasoning process, and the works of creation and providence, what God has made and how he sustains it, do so far manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. It's what we're referring to in general revelation that God has revealed himself. The Bible tells us that God has revealed himself truly in general revelation, and therefore all men and women know God truly, and they know that they are to worship him. You have Romans 1 open before you. Let's read Romans 1, 18 through 21, and verse 32. Look at the six descriptions of the general revelation of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it in them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The knowledge of God in general revelation is, first of all, a universal knowledge of God. Did you notice four times it says it in this passage, all people know God. Now, whether they fully acknowledge that, whether they correctly process that information, everyone is aware of God. They're God conscious. Calvin put it, every person is endowed with the seed of religion, census divinitatis. Now, they may have transferred that God consciousness to another faith object, but all unbelievers have a sense of morals. They all have a sense of justice. Look how the whole woke movement is driven by a sense of justice, of truth, of meaning, of aesthetics, of confidence. Every religious system is claiming that there are true truths from their belief system. Even relativism says there's no absolutes, which is an absolute. Belief systems cannot hold together if they have denied the existence of God. Everyone has faith. It needs to be in the true God, but instead the sinner will transfer that faith to something created, even themselves. This is why the scriptures nowhere proves the existence of God. It just starts with assuming. Everybody knows this. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. There was a story in the Reader's Digest in an introductory philosophy course at the University of Mississippi that Professor took almost a full class period to present a carefully constructed argument for the existence of God. At the final summing up, we were all silent and the professor was quite pleased with his work. Addressing a student, he asked, Miss Green, have I proved to you that there is a God? She promptly replied, You didn't have to prove it to me. I knew it all the time. The knowledge of God In general, revelation is a universal knowledge of God. All people know God. Secondly, the knowledge of God in general revelation is an internal knowledge of God. You notice how I read verse 19. It can be translated that he has shown it to them, but it's better it's shown in them, in their soul, in their convictions. This is not a knowledge that has to be learned later on in life. You are born with it. It's part of your soul. Just as a person knows that they exist, so they know that God exists. Well, what do you say to me? What about those who say that they don't believe in God? Well, it's more accurate to say that they don't want to believe in God. They do have a knowledge of God, and they're trying to suppress it. That's what verse 18 is saying, the suppressing the truth. It's actually from a word that means to put something behind bars. They want to lock it up. They want to suppress it. So the heathen in Irian Jaya or the Babylonian rainforests are not tr- trying to discover God on their own. They're trying to get away from what they know of the true God. All people are trying to suppress what they know of God being made in the image of God and that they will give an account to him. It's like trying to hold a volleyball underwater. And it's just as futile. The knowledge of God, thirdly, in general, revelation is a reliable knowledge of God. Verses 19 and 21 says it twice. Not just that there's a potential, 
a potential ability or a capacity to know God. No, they, they don't even just know a God. No, they know God. Fourth, the knowledge of God in general revelation is a perpetual knowledge of God. Verse 20 starts with four. He's stressing the point of verse 19. God's made it plain. It's been clearly seen. And here it comes. Since the creation of the world, it's a temporal phrase, time. Ever since creation on, always, everyone has always had a knowledge of God. It's part of your soul. Shaw writes, in every country, at every period, some idea of a superior being and some species of divine worship have prevailed. The persuasion of a God is universal. Fifth general revelation is the theological knowledge of God. All know his attributes, these essential qualities, attributes of who God is, and they know that they will give an account to him. All people know of his power. They know of his wisdom. Think of the images that have been sent back from space through the Hubble telescopes and others, and the galaxies. Think of the, what we're still discovering about the DNA and even within us. His wisdom, his design, his purpose, his order just gives you a sense of awe. His goodness, he distributes happiness to his creatures. The attributes of God's person have been clearly perceived as truths about God, not just a divine higher power, but people know that God exists. And then six, the knowledge of God in general revelation is an external knowledge, verse 20, in the sense of objective or scientific. It's plain to them. God's shown it in them, all people, all times, without any limitation of persons, no one's excuse from the beginning of time, verse 20, then, having been clearly perceived. In Greek, it's one word. And it's the idea of seeing with the physical eye. God has left his imprint on the entire physical universe. Now, you may try to throw away the knowledge of God. That's the key to understand the universe. But it's there. Van Til writes, all men know God. Every fact of the universe has God's stamp of ownership, indelibly and with large letters engraved upon it. God has revealed himself truly in general revelation. That's what the Bible tells us. And therefore, the conclusion is, all men and women know God truly and are called to bring him worship. Verse 20, they're without excuse. There are no atheists. An atheist is somebody who says, I know there is no God. But nobody can credibly say that. No one has all knowledge has been everywhere in the universe to reach this conclusion, I know that there is a, no God. That's not credible. Some may say, well, okay, I'll give you a pass on that, but I, I'm an agnostic. Well, what's an agnostic? An agnostic says, I don't know if there is a God or not. Well, Romans 1 says you do. God's made you to know that. You're trying to suppress that volleyball, but it's, it's futile. God will not allow sinners to completely suppress the knowledge of God. A friend sent me an article by Emily Yoff, quote, since the 1990s, building on the work of E.O. Wilson, father of sociobiology, a band of researchers from psychologists to zoologists have been studying the origin and expression of moral emotions, those instinctive feelings of right and wrong. They say Homo sapiens did not invent morality. Instead, we come equipped with it. 
Yes, we have to teach our children accepted rules of conduct and proper character, but Mark Hauser, professor of psychology at Harvard, argues that they are readily able to learn because a moral template is already there. Just as linguists believe children quickly pick up speech because they're born with an intrinsic language learning ability, we smile. (laughs) A moral template already there? Sounds like Romans 1. God has put a seed of religion, that template. You do believe in God. It's built in. It's cognitive hardware. The sensitive divinitatis is a belief-forming mechanism akin to memory, reason, credulity, and sense perception, end of quote. All people know that they are to worship God. The confession goes on. Secondly, all people know that they're to worship the triune God. Section 2, religious worship is to be given to God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If one does not worship the triune God of the Bible, it's not true worship. It's not accepted worship. It's worship to another false God. And the confession goes on. Thirdly, all people are to worship the triune God Alone, second part of section two, it's not to be given to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, worship is not to be given except through a mediator, nor is it to be given through any mediator other than Christ. Worship's not to be given to angels or saints or any other creature. What did Jesus say in Matthew 4.10? Begone, Satan, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only and him alone. Not to angels. The angels forbid humanity to worship them. Remember in Revelation, I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel, but he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Colossians 2.18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. It's contrary to your profession of faith. No, we do not worship angels. We do not worship holy people or saints. The apostles were horrified that people fell down to worship them. Acts 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. They rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Remember when Peter came into Cornelius's home and he fell down to worship him, Acts 10. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. We do not worship the apostles or Mary or the saints of the Roman Catholic system. We worship the triune God alone. And then fourth, all people are to worship through the mediator, Christ, alone. Nor is it worship to be given through any mediator other than through Christ As sinners, we cannot worship God unless he's provided a perfect mediator to bring us to the Father, and Jesus is that mediator. That's Jesus' claim in John 14, which you may have opened before you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because worship, because prayer is only accepted through Christ, 
what a challenge this is going to be for Christians in this world. It's a great challenge to our military chaplains who are being told they cannot pray in the name of Christ. There's a way to thread that needle, but they're, but they're facing great opposition. It's one reason why I believe that in today, in our post-Christian world, we do not want prayer in public schools. Because you won't know what's going to be prayed for, whether it's Hindu or Muslim or Unitarian. It's a lot better to have the Ten Commandments brought back into school, which I understand Texas is trying to do, to hear again of objective true truth, what sin is, why you need a Savior, so you can repent and believe in Christ and then pray through Christ alone. And we pray that there will be a time in our nation again when people call on Christ and pray, even in public, through Christ. We worship through Jesus Christ alone because he claims to be the way. He's the reconciliation to God the Father. What's our need? Well, our need is we don't know the way to the Father. The Bible says that on our own we do not know God, Romans 3.11. And even if we knew the way to God, we won't come on our own because by nature no one wants to. The unbeliever hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed, John 3.20. But Jesus is the way. He's the gate through which one must enter to have eternal life, John 10. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's God himself. He's the way to God. He's reconciled sinners to God by his death on the cross. On the cross, he was made to be sin. He who knew no sin was made sin. All of the sins of all of God's people for all time was put upon him, and he bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved, the full punishment. He paid for it in full so that all who put their faith in Christ, there is full pardon, there is full forgiveness. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is transferred to them, that justification. That way is open to all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. He is the way. Jesus, secondly, claims to be the truth because he's the revelation from the Father. What's our need? Well, our need is we don't know the truth. We're in spiritual darkness. We're blind. We cannot see, Ephesians 5, 8. We're under the power and the dominion of darkness. We abide in darkness. We refuse to come to the light, 1 John 1, 6. But Jesus is the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the word of truth, Ephesians 1, 13. So he's standing against all Cults, he's standing against all false teaching about God, all the lies of Satan, all the counterfeits of this world. Jesus stands in contrast to the dark and the hopeless relativism of our day. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. Because of him, we have regeneration by God the Father. What's our need? Oh, we don't have life. We're born dead. Ephesians 2.1 we must have miraculous birth of God or we will never see the kingdom of God, John 3. So what's the answer? Jesus is the life. John eleven twenty five. he's the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, John 5, whoever, truly, truly, I say, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. And Jesus claims even more. Yes, he's the way, the truth, and the life, but he claims even more than that. He goes on. If that wasn't clear enough, 
the second part of the verse. No one, no exceptions, comes to the Father but through me. There is no other religion, there is no other way of salvation, there is no other mediator than the man Christ Jesus. No one can add to his work. It's full and final redemption. As James Boyce put it, salvation is by and through the work of Jesus Christ only, which is the slogan, Solus Christus. It means that through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has done it all, so that now no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or in purgatory can add to that completed saving work. The Bible is very clear, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's why acceptable worship is only through Christ, the mediator. There is no other salvation. There is no other religion that's acceptable to God. So it means that it isn't enough for a person just to do the best they can. It isn't enough for a person just to live by their conscience. If they haven't put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not have eternal life. There is no other way to be saved than putting your personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So those who have not done so, those who have never heard of Jesus Christ, are perishing. There is no plan B. There is no other way to be saved, and therefore... We're committed to missions. We're committed to evangelism. We're committed to praying for the salvation of those that we love. Think about it. If there was any other way for a person to be saved, if there was any other way for a person to go to heaven, then why would God have sent his son to die on the cross? If there was any other way to tell God, I'm going to find another way when he has provided the one way of salvation through the death of his son, it's the greatest insult upon God. It's to call God a liar, since he said there was only one way. It's to insult the precious blood of Christ and the unspeakable love of God. Carson used a stronger word than insult. He called it treason. Quote, from the perspective of the Bible, relativism is treason against God and his word. That the God of the Bible exists establishes the possibility of truth. That he is a revealing God establishes the possibility of knowing that truth. Christ's claim to the world is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Categorically claiming he is the only way. That's not only a claim, that's also a promise. Because if you put your trust in Christ, he is saying, you will come to the Father. It's a wonderful promise. All who come to him will come to the Father. All who come to Christ, he will not drive away. So put your faith in Christ. For this life and the next, Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Shall we pray?
Our Father in heaven, we need to be more and more convicted and assured of these things that this world that is pressing us into its mold of relativism and no absolutes and here's the message of your word there is true truth it is found in Christ and only in Christ our father we thank you that we have your word and we have your spirit and we pray that we might learn more and more how to speak the truth in grace and to really in wisdom know those opportunities to speak of the gospel, to speak of the truth of your word. Hide these truths in our heart that we will have them ready for that day when you give us opportunity to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.